The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. All right, good morning, everybody. It's Wednesday, you're watching Scorebox. Just to confirm with you all, there's no debt crisis out there anywhere, is there? No, no, there's no banking crisis anywhere, is there? No, no. No one's worried about delinquencies, and we're not going to have a harsh landing. Just want to confirm that. Okay, we got that? Okay, let's have your headlines then. Moody's slashes its ratings on New York Community Bank Court to junk, sending shares to their lowest level since 1997. But the US regional lender pushes back saying it has ample liquidity of over $37 billion. Elsewhere, Snap plunges in extended trade, sinking over 30% on a fourth quarter revenue miss and weak guidance, with a warning that the conflict in the Middle East is creating headwinds. Zima's Energy confirms its outlook after logging a near 24% jump in orders, but says it remains focused on solving issues in its onshore wind business. We'll be speaking to the CFO, Maria Ferraro, in 15 minutes' time. Italy's controversial capital markets reform bill is sent to the Senate after the lower house approves the measures aimed at luring in more listings to the country. And Boeing admits it must do better. That's after an initial report finds four key bolts were missing from the 737 MAX panel that blew out mid-flight. I think it's fair to say I'm one of those people who have been barking on in the wilderness for years about debt and the concerns about it and the build-up of debt that we built up at 0%. And now we're at 5% in US plus and 4% in the US, in Europe and the UK plus. I can't see how there can't be ramifications. But people keep telling me it's okay. We're good. We can handle the delinquencies. We can handle uh, the fact that there's refinancing going on. So when I saw a story yesterday about a Canary Wharf office building that fell into receivership is now being sold at a 60% discount to its last sale price, I still get alarm bells, Karen, I have to say. And then when I see other stories, my alarm bell stopped ringing so loudly in my ears, I can barely hear anything else. I think the problem is that there's also a narrative on the other side which makes you feel as though everything's smooth sailing. And that narrative is at this point in the cycle, despite much higher interest rates, a rapid increase that we're not used to, you've not seen a ratcheting up of non-performing loans at many banks across the world. So one sector in particular we're talking about, and that is namely property, commercial property, I yeah. think we're seeing real issues start to crop up. Some uh, companies that have taken on more debt than they should have during the, the low interest rate period, we're seeing problems there. But we're not seeing, by and large, right across the entire banking sector, which is why I think some people are sort of ignoring red flags that have been popping up. I think everything is not smooth sailing. I think there are large amounts of the world economy that are going really, really well. Look at the jobs picture in the States last week. I think there's a lot that people should be very hopeful about and positive about. But there are also so many reasons why this might not be the smooth landing. And I don't think it is just property. I think that the consumer and the personal balance sheet is under a lot of pressure. Why don't we do a little bit of work on this? Shares in New York Community Bancorp plunged 22% Tuesday. Okay, 22% are sinking to their lowest level since 1997, after Moody's Investor Services slashed the lender's credit rate 
to uh, grade to junk. The stock extended the decline in after-hours trade, down another 17%. Now, the ratings agency cited financial management and risk management issues, adding that the bank does not have enough reserves to cover potential loan losses. The stock route was triggered last week when the lender posted a surprise quarterly loss, cut its dividend, and that on the back of worse than expected real estate losses. As I mentioned, after hours, there are some big losses, um, 17% still uh, yet to fall. And if I just go back to the other chart, year to date, they are down 59%. Now, in the past couple of hours, NYCB has stated their case. They have responded to the downgrade, saying it has total liquidity of over $37 billion, which it says exceeds its uninsured deposits with a coverage ratio of 163%. The lender added that it has around $17 billion in cash. Now, the CEO is uh, Thomas Kanjemi, and he says the Moody's downgrade is not expected to have a material impact on its contractual arrangements. Well, this has caught the attention, of course, of the US Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen. She says she is monitoring developments. Commercial real estate is an area that um, we've long been aware um, could create financial stability risks or um, losses in the banking system. And um, this is something that requires careful supervisory attention. So let me just flesh out a little bit what I was saying with Karen there. And she quite rightly said CRE. And it has been the epicenter of many concerns uh, about higher financing of higher debt at higher interest rates. But how about this? Delinquency rates across the United States rose to 3.64% in the third quarter. This is according to the New York Fed's household debt and credit report. With all sectors rising except student debt. Well, let's put that in some form of um, context. And I've got the context for you on the screen if you're reading. If you're listening, this is the context. The central bank said the number of failed auto loans hit the highest level since 2010. Right? Remember what was happening in 2010, everybody? Yeah. Uh, whilst 8.52% of credit card loans are now in delinquencies. That's the highest level since 2011. Again, same issues about 2010. Household debt hit a new all-time high of $17.5 trillion at the end of 2023. And I'm willing to admit as well, of course, say that actually households have had many, many benefits as well, especially if they're holding cash as well. They've had a higher interest rate. Uh, if their properties haven't gone down, they've had extra wealth there. If they're owning stock market assets in their 401k. So it's not a slam dunk in one direction. I'm just pointing out that there are enormous tensions in the system. So for those people who are desperate to get rates down quickly, are they desperate because they're desperate to see this soft landing, this landing path, or actually are they really worried about bigger problems in the system, whether it be on the consumer or whether it be in CRE? Yeah, exposure, I think, to certain parts of the market is a problem. And this is subtly different from what we saw last time around. Last year, as we had issues in the regional banks, for instance, uh, the maturity of loan portfolios certainly key. What happened uh, in the cleanup then? We saw New York Community Bank Corp take over Signature Bank. And if you think about what it picked up at the time, it picked up deposits 
worth about 88.6 billion, but it also picked up 38.4 billion worth of loans and other assets previously held by Signature. So those loans, of course, folded into its own business. What's happened here? I think everybody's looking at the, the um, backdrop. The, the chief risk officer departed ways with the company. That has been something that's been noted. That the head of risk had been there since 2019. So the losses that have been mounting the real estate portfolio certainly have been the, the epicenter of the concerns, which is having the bank stock. Are we out of it? And I think uh, the structural issues, it's almost a bit like China. How quickly can you clean up some of the issues in the sector? There are structural issues that are here. The office block story, do we need as many offices as we had in the past? If there's a reset taking place, what does that reset look like? And have the prices dropped to the point where you now have some sort of value? Or is there more of a decline to come? We're going to a more difficult macroeconomic environment. Where does that leave the other part of the portfolio? Again, shopping assets. The consumer has been very strong arm in the United States which in some ways has helped counteract some of those shopping trends where, of course, e-commerce has been the structural shift there as well. So tighter macro environment, the messaging from the central bank in recent weeks that we're still higher for longer at this point. We're not going to get a March cut and question marks even if a May cut at this point. Where does that leave the ability of uh, some of these uh, organisations to repay debt. All of the above. So let's all pay more attention to consumer credit data. Luckily, at 1500 Eastern Time, we do have some more credit data as well. So we're looking for 16 billion in terms of the consensus figure for the overall consumer credit increase. Um, It jumped to $23.8 billion in November after a smaller gain in October. I would draw your attention to Uh, rise in revolving credit, which is currently trading at the highest level since March 2022 in the last figure. So let's have a look at those a little bit later on. We are halfway through the U.S. earnings season. Earnings growth sits at just over 8%, with 51% of S&P companies having reported. But earnings beats have overshadowed plenty of misses on revenue, and many firms have warned of tougher times ahead. Snap followed that trend with its own fourth quarter earnings, sinking more than 30% after the bell despite an EPS beat. But a revenue disappointed coming in at $1.36 billion. That's almost 5% higher on the year, but slightly below LSEG forecasts. Uh, let's move on for all you sports fans out there. I think this is fascinating. Disney's ESPN, Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery are planning to launch a joint sports streaming service this autumn in a bid to capture younger viewers who are not using cable. The platform will include all sports TV channels operated by the three companies as well as streaming content and will be able to bundle with existing services such as Disney Plus and Max. Now we're looking ahead to Disney's first quarter results due after the bell. Investors will be closely watching the profitability of its streaming business and the company's cost-cutting plans as it prepares to face activist investor Nelson Peltz at its AGM in April. Arabile, good morning to you. Good what are you morning. looking at? Disney then, yeah? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's where a lot of investors might be asking, are the signs of a recovery actually real when it comes uh, to this one, right? They hadn't announced these uh, sort of major bringing together of entities or the sale of separate parts of the business as well in their fourth quarter numbers. So to have gotten just before the numbers come out, that deal then uh, with uh, Warner Brothers Discovery as well as Fox uh, to launch that joint sports streaming service alongside ESPN later this year, 
is uh, is them saying that they're trying to monetize uh, a lot from that. Overall, when it just comes to the numbers, uh, forecasts are expecting pretty much the same earnings per share as uh, the previous year then. It has been revised uh, over the last 30 days lower. So perhaps you're seeing that uh, investors are looking to a slightly lower sense. Their total revenue, well, that might also uh, be a little bit higher. It would be 12% up from the fourth quarter of 2023. So that could provide uh, some sense of growth with there. Let's remember as well that Disney has actually beaten uh, revenue as well as earnings estimates in seven of the last 10 quarters. But despite all of that, share price has fallen 12% over the last year. Of course, the S&P has added 20% in that time period. Uh, it is up, however, year-to-date 8%. So perhaps investors seeing some uh, relative uh, growth there. But let's remember that the stock is also relatively cheap. It is trading at 10 years, 17 times forward PE then uh, in comparison to some of the others in the segment. And will it grow subscribers? Of course, subscribers had been declining for three quarters straight until the last quarter where you saw that uh, pick up then from uh, 100 and uh, rather to 150.2 million subscribers. Well, I could put everything on the table, didn't he? Effectively saying there were no yeah. sacred cows around the TV legacy assets. He was looking at solutions, innovative solutions, and this idea around a sports streaming service coming right as we waited out for the earnings. So no doubt there'll be plenty of questions later on today. Mm. There is a view that this could propel further cord cutting that the one thing that was keeping TV viewers on the hook was the sports access. Yep. So you bundle that up, you put it in a separate service. Where does it leave the cord-cutting stateside in particular? 55% uh, of US sporting rights, according to City, will be housed in the streaming service. It doesn't include other big ones, namely the owner of this network, Comcast. Uh, no sporting rights from them, the likes of CBS, Paramount. So there are some areas of access that the sports enthusiasts won't have access to. But the solution... It's an interesting one, and you've got to say there are three different players. Does that mean if there is a, an element of uh, loss taking place, and we've seen that streaming services do lose money for a time, who kicks in the funds? All three equally? Or are there stronger players here like Disney, where the pressure is on one of the stronger players to fork out more cash? Yeah. Well, what we know on the one side is actually that each company will own a one-third stake of the combined business uh, that they will have. There's no name, no price, of course, set to it yet, and we'll hopefully get that in time. Perhaps even with uh, the interview that we have with Bob Iger later today, consumers will also have the option to either subscribe in the form of a new app or through a bundle with the rest uh, of the streaming products from these companies, including Max, Hulu, Disney Plus. So you're quite right. Where does the funding then come to when they need that at a later stage to try and get a, a few more rights? It's also interesting that you're getting this model now where streaming services are perhaps looking towards sports to grow their businesses. Let's remember that Netflix not so long ago announced sports entertainment, as Steve would rightly fight off, that WWE Raw is now going to be broadcast on Netflix. So is this the way to go then in terms of sports, getting it onto those streaming sites? Um, big questions. Thank you very much indeed for that, Arabile. Uh, we're going to hear from the Disney CEO, Bob Iger, later today, that exclusive interview coming at 10 p.m. Central European time. Coming up on the show, we're going to look ahead to Alibaba earnings due today with the tech giant predicted to post a drop in third quarter profit amid a restructuring. Plus, the world's largest jeweler, Pandora, stops using mined gold and silver. Uh, but will earnings take a hit? Well, we'll find out with the CEO, Alexander Lechik, uh, coming up on this show. 
And stay tuned for more from the C-suite as we digest investors' earnings with the CEO, Henrik Andersen. First on CNBC interview coming up at 9 Central European time. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Let's take a look at Siemens Energy fourth quarter numbers. Swinging to a 1.6 billion euro net profit in the first quarter. But this is about a one-off, which is the sale of an Indian affiliate to uh, the former parent Siemens, actually. So that is what has really flattered the numbers. Um, That stake accounted for 2.1 billion euros, the price of that stake sale as well. As uh, we can note, the shares have, have, have bounced off their October lows, but still down 23% over the last year as well. But the problems at Siemens Gamesa, they're still there and we need to work through this. So I'm delighted to say Maria Ferraro, the CFO at Siemens Energy, joins us now. Maria, really nice to see you. And I've just been going through as much of your 18-page report as I possibly can whilst on air as well. Siemens Gamesa is still suffering a high cash outflow due to loss and a buildup of uh, operating network capital. Look, there's some great stuff going on elsewhere in the business, grid technologies, transformation of industry, but we're still blighted by the same old issues. When, Maria, when can you and Christian get past the problems at Siemens Gamesa? Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, Well, yes, I think we're really pleased with the solid start to the year. Um, You highlighted that. Um, We're happy with that momentum that continues across all of our businesses with strong order intake. It was a record order intake quarter. Again, um, and this is on a high basis of comparison, sales up as well, 13%. I mean, profit, yes, as you rightly mentioned, we had the sale of our sales stake uh, as expected. This is in line with our goal for net cash uh, from proceeds of two and a half to three billion. We're well on track to have that um, this year. But you're right, we continue to work through our Siemens Gamesa quality issues. And we saw that this quarter was a stable quarter. Um, so as expected, and step by step, we're going to be looking at all of those quality issues and rectifying those. When I look at um, the book to bill ratios everywhere in your operation, it pretty much gets tick after tick after tick. Apart from Siemens Gamesa, where your book to bill is sub one now as well. Is there a way, is it, sorry, is there a world in which basically you just write off Siemens Gamesa and say, we're good at other stuff, but this is just not where we're at? Listen, I think we need to fix the Siemens Gamesa issue. That's our first priority. Like I said, we're doing that step by step. But we also indicated at our Capital Market Day that we expected this, let's say, trough in orders. One is, of course, we've halted uh, the sales on our 4X and 5X turbines as a result of this quality um, investigation or, or procedures that are going at this point. So that's fully expected. But looking at the other businesses, you're fully right. Our grid technologies business had an unprecedented quarter at almost four 
for book to bill um, the other businesses are really progressing well in all of their areas this is due in part to of course our products and our solutions and what we're doing for our customers but also in continuing that market momentum um, that very positive market momentum that has contributed to this very solid start to our fiscal year Maria, before we move on from Siemens Gamesa, can I just ask you about the higher product costs that uh, if you've got these contracts that are completed by clients, it's going to cost you, but also the ramp up around the offshore wind. Just unpick that for us and where we're at in the cycle. Yeah, it's an excellent question. We have over uh, just shy of $42 billion in backlog um, in our Siemens Gamesa business. This is a, also a record order backlog. Half of that approximately is in our offshore business. And as we said, we're ramping up across all of our facilities to really ensure that we facilitate um, executing those orders. So where do we stand? We stand that we're still ramping up. We still see that there's, let's say, challenges with those ramp up, but we're well on our way. We're progressing as we expect, step by step this year. Again, it's only quarter one, so there's still a lot in store for us at Siemens Energy. Just looking at grid technologies, a big step up here in the percentage change you're expecting for full year 2024 versus uh, the likes of 23 on the first quarter here, at 32.9% on orders, a significant increase. What's driving the momentum here? Is it green transition? Is it AI? Just give us a sense of what's taking place in the motivation for grid te- technologies. Yes, what's fueling that is, uh, you know, the various plans across the globe with respect to energy transition or green transition, as you just mentioned. So what we see, what we saw here in Q1 was a very strong European uh, slice for quarter, but that's to say it's also happening in other parts of the world. But certainly for Q1, there were a few orders, a handful that were here booked in Germany. But we anticipate that that will continue, that momentum in our grid technologies business will continue. I think it's no doubt that each and every country is looking at how do they progress their energy and their green agenda. And certainly our grid technologies business is excellently poised to really benefit from those programs. And you're seeing that in quarter one and hopefully continuing throughout the rest of our fiscal year. I hope you're right, Maria, but I just worry. I know you've got a seven and a half billion euro state guarantee from Germany at the tail end of last year as part of the, you know, the revamp of Siemens Energy and certainly the Gamesa side of things. But when I talk to others in the industry, and I'm speaking to um, Henrik um, Andersen a little bit later on from uh, Vestas, I, I, I see a very mixed approach from states as well. A lot of nimbyism, a lot of permit delays, a lot of regulation delays as well. We, we talk about we want this great big transformation, but do we actually put the measures in place in Europe? Well, maybe let me take those two pieces, because I think, uh, remember, it's not state aid that we received. It's really just a back guarantee for guarantees that we need. So we're paying for that, that we need to really execute on that 118 billion backlog that we have. So it's really just an instrument um, that we use with our customers that actually rarely ever get pulled. So it's really just an instrument. Again, not state aid, something that we're paying for um, to ensure that we're able to execute on our backlog. When it comes to the delays and the timing on the energy transition, you're absolutely right. We are not fast enough. Um, and we see that we have lots of goals, hefty goals. All it means is that we as Siemens Energy, like I said, really have the portfolio to address that. Now it's up to each and every country jurisdiction to really get sorry, their acts together and get that really going as quickly as possible because the energy transition in a negative way doesn't wait for us. Maria, unless I missed it, uh, I couldn't see anything around geopolitics in the statement today. And most companies have been warning about some sort of volatility coming through. You're in an area where there's been a huge amount of fiscal spending arguably impacted by some of the geopolitics and the elections that are going to be held this year. Just give us a sense as to how you're thinking about this. 
Yeah, I mean, we're a global company. So when it comes to, I mean, we're in over 90 countries across the globe. When it comes to looking at the politics within each of those regions, we look at that very carefully. But certainly, as I mentioned, we are in the energy business. And I think that's certainly the top of the agenda of all of, uh, let's say, the countries. And of course, when it comes to sensitivities around geopolitical uh, issues, we look at that. But certainly what we're seeing, again, uh, to go back is this very strong momentum across our entire portfolio and our agenda. And we really expect that that hopefully stability continues. Maria, um, the ultimate goal is for net zero, but getting there is going to be incredibly bumpy for everyone. Um, you, you have got a very big and important section, which is looking at the energy transition as well. Is it energy transition for your customers now about getting to gas or is it actually about getting to a, a non-carbon product? Yeah, and I, th- I mean, this is really, that's why energy transition is a journey, and it really depends on where you start, right? When we see power to X transitions, I mean, that is something that we're helping that particular country or that company to get out of perhaps, you know, high emission coal and getting that to high efficiency gas. But still, that's actually making a positive contribution to the energy transition. And then there's, of course, going to the other end of the spectrum, where it's looking at, you know, purely renewable sources of energy and how do we get that back onto the grid. So to say that it's really a journey, which everyone has a different starting point. But what's great about that, and certainly what I'm proud of for our company, is that we have the span of the portfolio that really helps across all of those, let's say, start points of that journey. So I think we're well poised. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.